Good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show, The Nation Talks, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. We're so glad that you've joined us tonight. And as I always say every week, this is another exciting show. 60 solid gold minutes coming up. And, you know, it's been another great day for British democracy. You know, each and every day brings news of a new scandal involving Westminster corruption. So it's somewhat ironic, you could argue, uh, that what might eventually bring Boris Johnson down is drapery. And will we see headlines tomorrow that says, does this mean it's curtains for his curtains? I don't know. You know I mean, I can imagine some, some editor somewhere is trying to say, it's curtains for Johnson's curtains or curtains for Johnson's. Look out for that tomorrow. Uh, oh, uh, thanks very much for joining us. We, we had hoped, as you know, as I said last week, to have Nicola Sturgeon with us tonight. However, uh, she's not available, but, but we have an excellent deputy. In fact, the deputy leader of the SNP, Keith Brown, is with us this, this evening. And we'll be talking about the election and we'll be talking about Westminster, no doubt a little bit about corruption and Boris Johnson and the Tories, and of course the SNP. So it's going to be a wide-ranging discussion, I hope, and so much more. But as always, as always, we're guided by your questions. So it's up to you. You can send your questions to uh, youtube.com forward slash Independence Live or use the information on the screen right now to submit your questions and your comments as well. But we prefer questions to comments, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, and we'll be taking your questions live tonight. Look on the What's On guide at whatson.scot if you need any help. So, in many respects, this is your show. Now to our guest. Tonight, the nation talks to Keith Brown. Keith, how are you coping with the pandemic? On a personal level, it's been um, very interesting. Um, two of my children have come back to stay at home during lockdown. I've managed to lose some weight with a bit of discipline. And of course, we're into this uh, very unusual election, which is unlike any previous election. So that's been different. And uh, we've not had the same level of contact with voters for obvious reasons. And the biggest part of the constituency in which I'm standing, Clipmanshire, was the last to come out of restrictions in terms of canvassing. So you know, a very different election. But at the same time, um, I think this parliament's run its course. The five years that we've had has been a a long, difficult five years for all sorts of reasons. So I'm delighted that we're about to have the fresh start of a new parliament. How old are your children, by the way? I have three children. Uh, Jennifer's uh, 31 and the boys are both in their early 20s. Uh, Jennifer's a teacher in Aberdeen. Um, Connor works for Sainsbury's but came back from London when he couldn't get into the office. And uh, the younger boy is much more involved in music and a band that he's with as well. Great. Sounds fantastic. So how are you coping with the hustings? You, you can't actually go physically and, and be with people. But you, you, you do it from home or, or the, the office. How do you do that? Yeah, mostly from home. And it's mostly, as you say, by Zoom. I think I've had three in the last three days and only once have I been told that I was still on mute, which I regard as a bit of a victory. Um, and you don't have the same atmosphere. There's no question. It's not like a normal election where you can get a packed hall and things can get quite... Uh, excited, but it's a different kind of um, uh, hustings. But uh, no, I'm enjoying it, and uh, quite a lot of media work as well, which I'm, I'm I'm quite enjoying. Yeah, what sort of media work have you been doing? Mostly interviews. I did the BBC Question Time last week, which um, turned out to be a, a leaders' debate uh, of something. Well, not a leaders' debate, but a leaders' question time, uh, which I quite enjoyed. And you know, the nine plus some network stuff, um, do some more BB stuff, uh, BBC stuff next week, um, network stuff as it gets towards the final days. There's one final leaders debate uh, that Nicola's doing on Tuesday night. So just a general um, media thing. But in the absence of some more orthodox campaigning that we're doing, then it's, it's meant that you stay really engaged. Mm, mm. Uh, what, what sort of questions are cropping up, would you say, on these hustings? What is it that people are concerned about? Well, the ones I've had most recently have been quite uh, subject specific. So this morning it was CTSI, which is the umbrella group in club manager for the third sector and voluntary organisations. So that dominated um, the, the kind of questions that we had. Um, on Monday night is my own hometown, Dollar, uh, and it, were, it was the full range of things, but some local um, questions as well. Um, 
So there have been a wide range and the Constitution has come up in every case. Whether the question has raised it, more usually my Tory opponent has used it in every second sentence um, with very little else to say, I would have to say. But um, So it, it's been the usual gamut, a lot of to, to do with COVID and how we recover from COVID. That, that's probably been the most dominant theme, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, what is your speculation? When, when do you think COVID will be? Uh, I hesitate to use the word under control because it suggests that you're having some conversation with a virus, which is clearly nonsense. But uh, I mean, what, what, what's the, from the health professionals? What is the advice you're getting? What sort of indicators are you seeing there that that, that, that look helpful or interesting? Well, I'm obviously not in government, so I'm not party to that very specific information from officials, But so I, and I have the same diet of information as the general public to a great extent. Um, but I do look at the figures currently and think they're extremely encouraging. Today, for example, was the first day we're under 1% positivity rates, which means 1% of the less than 1% of the tests which are carried out are proving positive. And of course, the number of people who have been dying tragically from this has come down. So that suggests that we are starting to get to grips with things. But I'm also very conscious of the still unanswered questions about you know, when do we have to get vaccinated again? Once we've all been vaccinated twice, is it going to continue on? Uh, increasingly talk among some of the experts of a third wave, perhaps a more limited wave than previously. So um, I wouldn't want to speculate. I think it's something we have to um, continue to do. I, I know it's an old um, message now, but continue to exercise the caution that we do, whether we've been uh, vaccinated or not, and just keep driving the, the, the um, virus down, the numbers of the virus down. So, But I think there's been real progress being made, I think, in the last week or so, as people, certainly last weekend, were out and about in the shops for the first time, and it was, if you remember, a very sunny um, weekend, and that sign of real progress, which gives people hope, I think. Well, that, that does sound promising. It really does. Because a lot of people, I suspect, after a protracted lockdown, all they can think of is, I just want to get out. I just want to, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it, if, not necessarily for exercise, but for sanity. That's why I commend you for losing weight. I really do, Keith, sparing your blushes. I mean, because the, 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 the commonest response to being stuck indoors and not being able to do the things you want to do and the things you would like to do normally is to eat. You know, it's a way of you know, dealing with it, you know. So the fact that you've lost weight is highly commendable, I have to say. You must be one of the tiny, tiny, tiny minority that's managed to do that. I suspect there's loads of people watching and listening to this thing. Oh, I'd love to build it. <laughs> How much have you I, lost, I, by the way? It, well, I had lost um, two stone. It's come back a bit since then, so just over one stone. But it was. I think the thing for me in lockdown is it was easier to get a routine that you could stay, stick to. And for me... Um, trying to stay fit and lose weight has always been about trying to establish that routine and change your habits. Um, and I was able to do that certainly through the early part of lockdown. Um, and I, I needed to do it, to be honest. I had to lose some weight. I think it was good for my health to do that. So um, more difficult now. And election campaigns, I have to say, are times for me when my diet has kind of gone out the window and you end up on fast foods and running from place to place. Yeah. And obviously that's not been the same this time as well. So that, that's helped a bit too. Yeah. Do you think your uh, training as a soldier has helped? Uh, well, I think it was now a long time ago when I was in uh, the Marines, but um, they had a big emphasis, obviously, on physical fitness, the Marines more than most other parts of the military. Um, and at that time, I was running marathons, and um, it seemed to be effortless, as it often is at that age, to um, to keep your weight down, but also developing that um, interest in and adherence to physical activity. So even when I'd put on weight, I was still up over the hills and the Ocos and things like that. But now I've got a wee um, static bike and treadmill, and I've always found that kind of thing easier to do than um, gym work. I've never been a big fan of gym work. Yeah. But I quite enjoy the running, walking, and so on as well. A couple of times taking my car to get fixed into Alawa, leave it there and walk back and forth to uh, Alawa, 14, 15 miles, which was really good for me as well. But yeah, it does go back. I think you're right to, to that time in the military when I really adopted a bit of an appetite for it. Because yeah, you were a Marine in the Falklands, right? That's right. Um, I think next year's the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict, really? which just seems scary. Um, uh, but yes, uh, I was only in for a short time, three years, 1980 to 1983. 
I really enjoyed the time I was there. It was fantastic. Didn't expect the Falklands to happen, of course, but um, it did and um, got through that, which I was pleased to do. And whilst I was there, my older brother wrote to me saying, I've signed us both up for the first ever Edinburgh Marathon. And lo and behold, when I came back, he said that his one had gone missing in the post, but mine was fine. So I was scheduled <laughs> to do the Edinburgh Marathon. So um, I then left it to, to go to university, which I was very pleased to do. and enjoy. I was the only student, I think, that turned up with pencils sharpened and ready to go every morning. The military training had helped with that, you know. So. Yeah. So what's happened to the Falklands now? Do you have any uh, background on that? I mean, how were they affected by Brexit? Well, I did go down for the, the 30th anniversary, um, which is the first time I'd been back, and it had transformed at that stage from back in 1982, the infrastructure works, the roads around Stanley, the money which had come in, which had really come in from fishing, um, some, you know, very wealthy people there from the fishing licenses. Everyone talked about the oil, but the oil's not really been um, developed as such uh, as yet. Um, so it was fishing, but, you know, enormously more wealthy than it was when I was there. How Brexit's affected it, I don't know. Um, I've not been there since, um, and I'm not sure how much of the Falkland Islands markets were with the EU. Um, I've not heard a great deal. I mean, there's still only around three, 4,000 people there, I think. So um, I've not heard how the um, uh, Brexit's affected it. But one interesting point, when I was there in 2012, uh, there was a dinner at or a, a function at the Governor General's residence and I sought him out, this is 2012, as I say, and we'd announced we were going to have the referendum, and the Falkland Islands had just announced that they were going to have a referendum. And I said to him, a wee bit tongue-in-cheek, eventually I cornered him. <laughs> he was trying to avoid me the whole night, I think. Um, and I um, said, well, if, if you're looking for any um, advice on referendum, we're having one as well. So he said, oh, no, this is a completely different thing. I said, well, it's not. It's about self-determination. It's the same principle. Um, which I don't think you liked much, but um, it just added a nice little um, twist to the evening. I quite enjoyed that. Well, we've got a whole bunch of questions coming in. Uh, so why, why don't we take a look at some of these? Um, Jim McIntyre is asking, Keith, uh, your manifesto, I assume it means the SNP manifesto, states, choose Scotland's future in an independence referendum after the COVID crisis is over. So, two-part question from Jim. Can you tell us the conditions that would have to be met to comply with OVER? And B, who decides that these conditions have been met? Well, the crucial point is it has to be safe. I don't think anybody that supports independence really would want to be campaigning in a referendum when it wasn't safe to do so. I mean, no, just now it's not. That's why we have these restrictions in place. Yeah. As to the exact date for it, the date will be decided by the Scottish Parliament if it has that vote. And to get that vote, in my view, people have to vote uh, both votes SNP. And if we do that and have that mandate, then um, first of all, we will start work on the referendum uh, bill right away in the process for it. But as to the holding of it, that will be for the Parliament to decide. And in my view, it has to be. Uh, the priority is dealing with a pandemic. I mean, I've mentioned already that it's difficult to get much of a feel for many of the issues which are playing on people's minds because of the nature of the election. But there is no question that the pandemic is what's on people's minds. And they will know, people will know when they feel they're through that pandemic. So I think that's the important thing, when it's safe to do so. And the, the exact date for the uh, referendum will be decided by the Scottish Parliament. So, I mean, some people have said, but in the United States, they had a presidential election, which is a huge big deal. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking hundreds of millions of people. And if they can do it during a pandemic, what's to stop Scotland with, with what, what electorate of three million people from doing much the same thing? Well, I think it's in terms of statutory elections, I think there is a different calculation here. I think it's very wrong not to have statutory elections. There was a move by some of the other parties to try and put a cloud or a question mark over these Scottish Parliament elections, which I was very much against. And for the reason that you've just mentioned, that other countries, not just the US, but many other countries had had elections. I think a referendum was a different proposition. And for those of us involved in the 2014 referendum, you'll know how all-consuming it was. I actually heard, apart from lots of young people talking about it, I once heard primary school children on a bus discussing the referendum. It was all-consuming. 
And in terms of the street work and the activity, the fringe events around it, which we're not even able to have during the course of this election, I think these are very important when a decision like that's been taken. So uh, I'm quite at ease. We have discretion as to when the referendum happens. And I think we have to follow the people and people do not want to have this referendum in the teeth of a pandemic or when there's danger there. So I'm quite comfortable with saying the Scottish Parliament, which I have a lot of faith in, will take that decision uh, at the right time. OK. Uh, Gina Scott is asking, how have the social care services not received the bonus that the First Minister said we would get before the end of the financial year? Uh, that's a question I don't know. I've been asked that by a constituent just it was either today or yesterday, and we're looking into that in my office. As I say, I'm not in government, so I don't have uh, automatic access to all the processes which are there. But I think the important thing is that offer's been made, and if it's um, been a commitment that's been given by the government, it should be followed through. And just to point out, just to make the obvious point, this is the Scottish Government deciding they're going to give £500 to every single person in, in the NHS, the care providers that we have, and contrast that with the UK government who, uh, in addition to not doing that, in addition to taking tax off it, uh, also now will not uh, give anything more than a 1% pay rise to nurses, whereas the Scottish government is proposing 4%. So um, I think we have to follow that through um, and I'm happy to look into that if the person wants to get in touch with me. Um, but I'm not in government, so I can't give you a direct answer to that right now. But I guess if Gina Scott is it, gets in touch with you, you can redirect it to the appropriate minister. Who is the appropriate minister, by the way, for... There's two that may be appropriate. Jean Freeman is still the Minister for Health, although she's standing down at this election. Ministers remain in post right through until new ministers are appointed, and yeah. the other would be Kate Forbes. So it'd be those two ministers that I'll be chasing up in order to find out what's happening. Yeah. James Reith has been in touch to say, and you'll love this, respect Mr. Brown. <laughs> my, my missus was brought up with your daughter in dollar. She has the utmost respect for you and your family. It's nice to hear. Isn't I've it? got the utmost respect for my daughter, who's a teacher working <laughs> in difficult circumstances. And this past year's lockdown, at the end of which she contracted COVID, uh, but now is fully recovered. Um, but she, I think our teachers have done a, an absolutely fantastic job. But it, it's nice to get that kind of feedback. Yeah, isn't it good? Uh, where, where was your daughter teaching? She's teaching... Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the school. It's a primary school, and its name escapes me. It's not an area that I'm familiar with in Aberdeen, um, but um, yeah, it's a primary school in Aberdeen. She did a she did a law degree at Napier University, a BA, and then when she went to Aberdeen, her partner is is um, from Aberdeen. Um, she did a subsequent qualification at Aberdeen University, I think it was, and is now teaching. She's in about her third year teaching P6 pupils. Yep. Well, that's good. Well, uh, and, and, and she's better and she's yep. back at work. And yep. Well, that's a blessing. That really is. That really is super. Uh, Bob Mathewson is asking, why does the SNP not target list seats where they have uh, target, where they have any hope of winning than asking supporters to basically waste their vote in areas where the SNP has no chance at all of getting a list seat? and thereby keeping Westminster parties in Hollywood by default. I think some people that make that argument refer back to 2016, uh, when the SNP, I think, won four list uh, votes, and in some uh, regions didn't win any. All I would say is that was one election. If you go back to 2011, we won quite a number of list seats, and go further back than that, even more list seats. And because of the system that we have, it's not possible to either game the system or to try and work out in advance exactly what the result's going to be in order to work out how you're going to do in the list vote. So I think it's um, my responsibility as Deputy Leader of the SNP to say to people, vote for what you believe in. If you believe the SNP have been a good government, if you believe that the SNP are going to take us forward to independence, and if you support independence, then cast both votes for the SNP. And let people follow their own conscience in relation to this. People want to vote for other parties. That's entirely up to them. I don't. I'm in the SNP. I've never voted for any other party other than the SNP. I've never been involved in any other party other than the SNP. And I'm happy and quite clear in my mind that I want people to vote for both votes SNP. I also think, incidentally, what is going to happen after the election is that the 
Westminster government will be looking for any excuse to try and wriggle out of the democratic mandate that's been hopefully um, proffered in Scotland uh, to, I would hope, the SNP and to those supporting independence. And the stronger that vote is, I think the more effective that mandate is. And do you think Westminster draws a distinction between parties that support independence and the Greens, for example? Don't they just regard it as all either you're... I mean, it's going to be very difficult to argue against the SNP. I mean, even if it doesn't get a huge majority or doesn't get a majority at all, because the, the unionist parties have said almost collectively that a vote for the SNP is a vote for an independence referendum. So if you say that, and you lose that argument, and you lose it significantly. Strictly speaking, it doesn't really matter too much how many votes the SNP gets, surely. You know, I, I do think it adds to the political and moral authority of the party. But you're right, John, of course it's right, that if the majority of MSPs are elected support independence and they vote for it in the Scottish Parliament, that is uh, something that Westminster shouldn't ignore. But I'm not as naive to believe that the Westminster won't make um, those kind of arguments. We've seen in the last couple of days both Willie Rennie and Tony Blair saying, well, they might vote for it in a majority of SNP MSPs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want it. I mean, how twisted can your perception and your, your interpretation of democracy be? And I, I think Westminster will do that. I know they will do it. They did it, for example, after 2016 when they tried to say, well, the Greens manifesto or what they said in independence was slightly different from what the SNP said, so it doesn't count. So I have no doubt they'll play games with this, um, but I also have no doubt. And incidentally, I've never had any doubt they will back down if we get the right result uh, next week. I've always thought Boris Johnson will back down. And you're exactly right there, John. If you look at what the Tories are saying in the uh, constituencies just now, they're saying the only way to stop an independence referendum is to vote Tory. Well, if that's true, why does Boris Johnson need to be saying, I'm not going to allow it? And if Boris Johnson and they believe him when he says, I'm not going to allow it, why do we have to vote Tory? The two things don't go side by side. So I think the strongest possible vote is always what you should be going for. I'm sure that's true of the other parties as well, but I'm unapologetic in saying I want the SNP to get the highest possible vote, both in terms of the constituencies and in terms of the list votes. I mean, that's uh, there's a clear logic to that. Uh, Bob Mathewson is asking, is the Section 30 the gold standard? Because he feels it now looks like fool's gold. I suspect what he, he may be alluding to is the fact that whatever happens in these elections, Boris Johnson is not going to agree, or, or his successor, if that's the case, to anything remotely like a referendum. I, I think they'll maintain that position up to the election, but I just have to disagree with Bob. I've never believed it. I just, I, and the idea that Boris Johnson doesn't do U-turns or that Boris Johnson always tells the truth as he sees it is a bit of a, a strange fiction to me. I don't think that's the case. On the Section 30 issue, though, I think the Section 30 is desirable for lots of very practical reasons. Um, I don't think, though, that the withholding of a Section 30 from the UK government, we're not going pleading to the UK government. We want, please give us a Section 30. This is to try to get an agreement on the basis of the referendum so that what happens after the referendum, when, as I expect and hope we have, we vote for independence, becomes much easier to deal with and for the international community to deal with. And that becomes crucial after a vote for independence. But I said, and I got in a bit of trouble for it with the Tories about three years ago when first elected as deputy leader, at an event with the Aberdeen independence movement, that if you are a party and a movement is built on the idea of self-determination, then you cannot accept that somebody else can veto your right to express that right to self-determination. So the withholding of a Section 30 agreement is not sufficient to prevent a referendum from taking place. And as we've said, uh, as Mike Russell has said, it will be up to them if they want to try and do the Trumpian thing of using the courts subsequently to try and deny democracy and deny that referendum. So the Section 30 is desirable. I think we should ask for it. I think it helps if it's an agreed basis for the referendum. It gives us that international recognition, but they cannot use the withholding of a Section 30 to stop Scottish democracy. So what would happen if Boris Johnson says no? We've laid that out. We will proceed with the preparations for the independence referendum. If the UK government want to challenge that in the courts and say we don't have the power to do it, let them do that. I just think... 
I mean, just think how bad it looks internationally for the UK government to try and use some kind of court process to try and prevent what I hope will be a clear verdict of the people of Scotland that they want to have the right to choose, even those that might not support independence, and we've seen this, um, support Scotland's right to choose. And I think things like the STUC uh, vote, where they support the right to choose, I think it's an unassailable position if that mandate is clear and any attempt by the UK government to inhibit, to prevent it. As I say, I, I don't think, I've never thought it would happen. And I've said, and you can check everything I've said over the last three years consistently, that of course they're going to play games and they'll, they'll be at it. But I don't think they can sustain this, no, you're not going to have it. They might try and interfere with the franchise, the dates, um, all sorts of things. But I don't think it's sustainable. And actually, most Tories, if you talk to them, on the quiet. They don't think it's sustainable. They know Boris Johnson is going to have to turn around on this if the decision of the Scottish people is to have that referendum. I mean, that, that, it does seem to me there's a lot of force behind your argument there. Uh, but let me raise something with you, which I raised with Alex Salmond last week. Um, both you and, and, and he and his party want major constitutional change. He has actually said one of his aims is to produce a written constitution. What's the SNP's position on that? Uh, well, I think we've always had the view that we should have a written constitution in independent Scotland. And I know you've done a lot of work on this yourself, uh, John, and I'm very attracted to the idea. I think more work has to be done on that by the SNP. Um, and elements of that constitution are pretty obvious from the, um, the white paper that was produced in 2014. And I think we have to take that work further on. And one of the reasons why I think it's important, first of all, because there are people that worry about the rights of minorities in independent Scotland. There are people that are in other political parties that want to ensure that their rights are going to be observed. And this absolute nonsense that we've heard about a one-party state in Scotland, which there's no examination whatsoever. My uh, studies were in uh, political science and these people don't understand what a one-party state is, but there is that fear there. And I think a written constitution uh, laid down principles and not just on the straightforward um, uh, liberal interpretation of a constitution which guarantees rights, legal and otherwise, and political rights, but actually economic rights as well, I think are very important. So I think it's very important that we make that part of the offer when we come to the referendum, because it gives that assurance to people. An independent Scotland will be a democratic place where the rights of everybody are respected. So I have a lot of time for that argument, and I think it should be taken forward in the preparations for the next day referendum. Here's a suggestion for you. Um, actually, developing a written constitution takes some time. You need to get lots of people involved. Ideally, you want the greatest spread of endorsement you can possibly contrive because this will be the it will be the contract between the state whoever's governing it is is almost the material but between the state and its citizens it also tells the outside world how that state intends to behave in other words what the state stands for and what it will not stand for it takes time to do that but there is an interim constitution in that 2014 document why not just simply dig that out and say to people there you are this is we already have this interim. Uh, after independence, we can then take a look at that and see if it still holds up and put it to the populace as a whole. Uh, the alternative is to go down a route of citizens' assemblies and all the rest of it, which may be a useful thing to do anyway. Uh, and certainly if, if that was proposed, I would certainly applaud that. Uh, <clears throat> Mark Telford is asking a question. Uh, should we pose the question, uh, if the Unionist Party succeed, they will be bringing back the bedroom tax, prescription fees, bridge tolls, and all the other costs that the SNP managed to protect our citizens from. Yes, and I've, I've raised that. I think that the, one of the challenges which the SNP have to face is the fact that we've done these things now over many years and they're accepted as the norm. You don't pay your prescription charges. You don't pay uh, punitive fees to send your children off to university. Uh, baby boxes now, they've been around for a number of years. And people, I wouldn't say take them for granted, but it's not always in the forefront of their mind that they may be under threat if um, the unionist parties come in. I mean, the Tory party I remember I had a debate um, or a bit of a session in one of our committees when 
somebody who was a Tory MSP, she's now, a, I think it's called a Reform Party um, or something or other, Michelle Ballantyne, denied that the bedroom tax even existed. Um, and I think they would not bat an eyelid uh, in bringing back things at like the bedroom tax. If you take, for example, the proposals at the selection by the Conservatives to try and emphasise tax cuts for the richest people in Scotland at a time when we're in or in the midst of a pandemic and trying to go through the recovery, you can see where their instincts are going to take them. Tuition fees, I know they've, they've eventually, they've slated it for years and they've turned around on that. I get no, it's no certainty from the Tories in particular that they wouldn't turn around again on these things. So these things are under threat. And more importantly, the NHS, I think, is under a genuine threat from the Internal Market Bill. Um, and the predilections of a Tory party that was is desperate for a trade deal with the US and I think we'd sell out our NHS. So these things really are under threat. I do try and emphasise that, and the SNP does, as often as we can. Uh, but in addition to that, we also have to put fresh propositions to the people of Scotland. And I, I genuinely think the manifesto that we have this time is the best manifesto I've ever seen the SNP produce. And things like free dentistry, which take on some of those gains that we've made. Even the free school meals for all children all year round, both breakfast and lunch, I think are huge advances. So... But we should not let um, those huge advances we've made already uh, go by or be under threat without drawing people's attention to the fact they would be under threat if other parties were to get in. It's interesting you should say that, Keith. Um, I remember going back to 2014 and the referendum then and sitting down with Blair Jenkins and, and some other folks and saying I was concerned on two scores. One is... Um, where was the polling that needs to be done in any situation like that that tells you where you are day to day, week to week, if necessary, so you can make the adjustments? Um, and also, my feeling was that the Yes campaign was uniformly positive. Um, I said to him, it strikes me that you're, you're a bit like a one-club golfer. <laughs> you need some more clubs in your bag, and one of the clubs has to be this is what the opposition will likely do if they succeed. Uh, meanwhile, the opposition had lots of clubs, but many of them were just, well, project fear. Uh, but there was no, there, there wasn't even a, even a slight mirroring of project fear. It, it, was, it was very much positive, positive, positive. And I think at the end, maybe that proved to be the undoing because project fear uh, as soon as it saw that last opinion poll almost that put yes ahead, it pulled out all the stops, broke all the rules. The rules were you can't introduce a, a late offering because that completely skews the system. But they did it anyway, did it on the front page of the deal record. And it was hugely effective. I mean, it shifted the polls dramatically. Uh, and it would be nice to think if this ever happened again, that there would be a few clubs in the in the in the bag that weren't all it wasn't all positive because I think you can reach a lot of people through positive, but I think there are some people, frankly, you can only reach through negativity. Now I'm not suggesting we go as far as they do in the states, where every campaign is routinely negative, <laughs> and you're hard pressed to find anything positive about anyone. But it's just a thought looking down the pike. Got a question here, Keith, about the uh, the growth commission. Uh, the Sustainable Growth Commission. Willie Thompson says, does Keith support the Sustainable Growth Commission fully or are there elements of the report which he perhaps doesn't feel so happy about? And if so, which are they? I do support the Growth Commission. I actually proposed um, its adoption at the SNP conference and it was passed in virtually every regard bar one. A very important um, amendment was carried to it. And because that is passed at conference, that is SNP policy and the SNP deputy leader, I support that policy. I think, though, it is true to say that things have changed quite dramatically in interim. Um, that's kind of stating the obvious. Um, the pandemic, COVID, and the economic impact of it have hugely changed uh, the circumstances of that. And I think for that reason, we have to look afresh uh, at um, some of the provisions within that. I think it does help underline the fact that we can't take um, the big decisions which are required if we want to recover in the same way to a better position than we, are, we were before. Uh, without some of those key powers. So, yes, I supported the Growth Commission. Um, 
It was passed by the, uh, a huge majority in the SNP with that important uh, change, which is about the timing of a move to Scotland's own currency. Um, but I do think it is in need, and it will have to be updated for the next offering that the SNP makes uh, at a referendum that's coming. I think it's important as well to say, John, the independence movement now is different from the independence movement back in 2014. It's now much more established. There are much more centres of influence uh, within it. It's more disparate. Um, and it's quite legitimate for different parts of the independence movement to have different views on what the economics and the, the, the sustainable growth of a future independent Scotland are. I think if we can carry out that discussion um, respectfully, then that's not an issue. Let, let a thousand flowers bloom. People have got different ideas on those things. But the SNP is entitled to have its ideas as well. Um, and uh, I, I do think uh, the sustainable growth contains many good ideas, but it, it will have to be updated for the current circumstances. I mean, some people have argued uh, that a better approach would be to look at, at modern monetary theory, uh, which suggests that the, the sustainable growth model uh, might not be appropriate in the circumstances we find ourselves in. And the, the, the advocates of the modern monetary theory would, would point to world wars, they would point to FDR and the New Deal, uh, they would point to COVID, and they would say, in all of these cases, money was found. Taxation wasn't altered, the amount of money going out wasn't altered, but miraculously, billions of pounds, dollars have been found. So growth is not predicated upon uh, the basis of the Sustainable Growth Commission view, but rather on whether you have a sovereign currency or not. Because if you have a sovereign currency, then you can print as much as you like, which is pretty much how the UK has handled COVID. I mean, taxes haven't increased. Uh, billions have been spent, much of it going to friends of the government. Uh, but for much more constructive uses as well. So where did that money come from? Well, the answer is it came from the Bank of England who gave the government money. But the government, the Bank of England is owned by the government. So the government actually just printed money. So if you can do that and you've lost your own currency, what's to stop Scotland from doing that? Well, people that believe that are perfectly entitled to put forward that point of view. That's not my party's point of view. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm more relaxed than some of those people are about the situation. We have a difference of point of view, a difference in the interpretation of economics. I don't go rubbishing um, what they have to say. They're perfectly entitled to put that point of view. And it's a healthy thing that we have competing points of view. And don't forget, of course, that whatever view the SNP puts forward as its proposition for independent Scotland counts for nothing. The independence uh, general election that happens after we vote for independence is when parties can put forward exactly how they want to run the economy. There is a demand, and a legitimate demand, for people to have an idea of what we would intend. The SNP is currently the biggest party the government would intend for independent Scotland. We are putting that out there, and we're perfectly entitled to do that. It doesn't oblige others, uh, either within or out with the independence movement, to uh, mirror that or agree with it, but we're entitled to do it. Uh, and let people argue about MMT, uh, perfectly legitimate for them to do that, but it's not my uh, point of view. Just remind us all, I should have asked you this at the beginning, it's an oversight, I apologise. What is the role of the deputy leader of the SNP? Uh, well, the main role is to deputise uh, when the leader's unable to carry on a particular function. It's not a government role. Uh, that's the Deputy First Minister, uh, John Swinney, that does that. So I deputise for the First Minister, you know, to um, ADC meetings and certain things like that, when if she's not available to do that. I have a particular role in relation to policy within the party. I call what uh, we call in the SNP National Assemblies, which is a policy-making body. I'm a member of the NEC and a representative for the party in lieu of the leader when she's unable to, to do that. Yeah, that's very helpful, thanks. Um, here's an interesting question, Keith. James Reith is asking, what's the SNP's outlook on wild camping? It seems to be getting stifled out. Camping outdoors, not camping sites, are the backbone for many Scottish families, a way to connect with the land. And it seems every year that passes legislation is happening that seeks to destroy that. 
Um, I've done some pretty well camping in my time, I can tell you, <laughs> thinking back to the Falklands. Um, and since then, and I enjoy camping, I think part of the issue is the way that some people behave in the countryside. Um, if you look, for example, up the side of Loch Lomond, some wild camping that's going on there is absolutely atrocious with the human waste and litter that's left behind. And I'm not saying that's true of all wild campers. I know people that have been doing wild camping for decades and do it very responsibly. But I think that's been perhaps some of the reason why uh, people are looking to try and limit, um, uh, limit it because of the damage it can do to the environment. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate. And it is a pattern society that we see the worst excesses of a small minority ruining the, the wider opportunities for a, a larger group of people. Um, so I, I would say camping, I think, is a, a great thing to do. I, I usually often go to, um, or used to go to Sochop Park, I think it is, in uh, in Crail and Fife, a fantastic campsite. It wasn't well parking, but it was... Um, uh, camping. But we had some wild nights also were there, I would say. So I think if people act responsibly, then the greater the greater uh, ability to do these things freely is when people act responsibly in that. And why would you not want to look after wherever you're camping, the environment that you're in? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I'm not sure people in Scotland fully uh, appreciate the fact that they can get uh, to places in the countryside as quickly as, as they as they do. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if you look at many other countries, it's a major problem just to get out of town uh, and it requires a, a major expedition. <laughs> you have to put it all together. You have to get all the rest of that stuff together. Even before you set out here, you can do it on impulse. You can just head out and, you know, it's all, it's all there for you. Here's a question from Nancy McKeever. And she's wondering what your take is on the, uh, the, the Martin Keating Section 30 case, which is presently with the courts. And the result was expected before the election, by the way. Uh, Martin has his uh, point of view on that, and that's fair enough. We live in a democracy. People are entitled to take these things as he has done right through the court process. It's not the way that I would choose to go. I, I mean, I, I think it's... Simply the case, I'm in the SNP, we've chosen the path that we want to do to try and achieve independence. I know there are people that are either more impatient or disagree with the tactics that are used by the SNP, and that's just the stuff of democracy, but it's not the route that I would have chosen to take. I mean, we've interviewed Martin on the show, and his contention is, uh, and you've made the point yourself tonight, but at some stage, you might have to recourse, have recourse to the courts anyway. So why yeah, well, not do it now rather than wait? Well, like those that disagree with Scotland's right to choose, uh, make that challenge rather than make the challenge ourselves. I, I'm not saying that we don't have the right, though. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I think Scottish democracy is the final word. It doesn't matter to that extent what Boris Johnson says. If the people of Scotland vote to have a referendum, a referendum they shall have. I've never had any doubt in my mind, as I say, I've never had any doubt in my mind as well about um, the fact that Boris Johnson will U-turn on this. And actually, my view has been, and I've said this, repeat, it's not a new thing I'm saying now, but I've said for the last two or three years that I think the more frequently that Boris Johnson said no, the more it drove people towards independence. Um, it animated two groups in particular when he or even before him, Theresa May said this, animated the right-wing unionist Tory, um, more fundamentalist like the Tories, who thought, great, Boris Johnson's a strong man, he's going to stop these dastardly Scots from doing what they want. And it animated folk on some folk on the yes side, who thought, this is an absolute scandal. I've just never believed it was going to happen. But I did think that uh, it helped drive that, that group that, of people that um, perhaps voted no last time, but are not averse to the idea of Scotland having the right to choose and became more and more scunnered by a Tory government that, first of all, attacked the powers that the Scottish Parliament, as it exists, currently have, and kept saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do this. I think it's helped their cause then doing that. But I've never felt it was going to be sustainable if the people of Scotland decide they want to have that referendum. So I, I think that right is there for the people of Scotland. And it's not so much a legal right. It is a legal right as well, I think, but it's more of a democratic right, which trumps a legal right in every circumstance, in my view. Some of the people who've been, thank you for that. Some of the people who've been in touch tonight have been concerned about timing. And their concern is not the conventional, uh, how long will Boris Johnson be able to sustain saying no, 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 uh, but rather 
that a combination of COVID uh, and their worry is that a, 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 a deeply damaging uh, rollout of Brexit, uh, accompanied by uh, unionist efforts to emasculate the Scottish Parliament, uh, mean that any delay could be disastrous because they, they look at Johnson, they look at the people who support him, they look at some of the things they say, and they're, they move to the fairly reasonable conclusion that if these people could, in fact, uh, I use the word emasculate because it's the right term, I think, and I was to remove the money from the Scottish Parliament so that it has no ability to uh, conduct its business uh, in any meaningful way. Their worry is that that's in train and that will happen and that any delay to a referendum would make that all the more likely. What's your answer to that? I, I think some of these concerns are entirely legitimate. And if you look now at some of the comments from people like Adam Tompkins, apparently a professor of law, talking about something more robust than consent um, being required to deal with, the, as they would see, the Scottish question, and the attacks that have been on the Scottish Parliament and its powers and the Internal Market Bill uh, preeminent amongst that. Even more recently, the... the idea that the Scottish Parliament can pass unanimously, even with Conservative MSPs, uh, support for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Children, and yet they still want to try and um, strike that down. So, yes, of course, I've always been concerned during the whatever it is, 37 years that I've been in the SNP about what Westminster is doing to Scotland. Um, I understand that point. And the point about Brexit is really important as well. My fear has been that Brexit uh, becomes, if you like, something of a new normal to people and accept that as the environment in which we live. However, I don't think that's the case just now. And I think we've seen the absolute disaster that's happened to some of our vital markets and, and, and sectors of our economy since Brexit. And I don't see that improving. Um, but I do still think we have to, um, you know, COVID was the other um, thing that you mentioned as well. And I think COVID is the determining factor in timing. I think it has to be when it's safe for us to do. But we all wrestle with these questions. That, you know, you've been involved a long time as well, John. I've, you, you always wrestle. I know Nicola Sturgeon wrestles with these questions as well. And that's our judgment. We, we think it should be done as soon as possible time. I'd like to have seen it Scotland independent when I first got involved in politics. Perhaps I wouldn't have got involved in politics if Scotland was already independent. But um, I think it has to be done when it's safe to do so and when they... they the threat, if you like, to, to people from COVID is 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 over. What would you be? How would you be inclined to react if, uh, hopefully, you're elected and you're an MSP, and whatever structure is used, the internal market or some other legislation that's introduced that says, "Look, uh, we're going to channel money direct," uh, and you've had some experiences this locally. We're, we're going to. We, we, don't need, we don't need this extra tier of government. We, we don't need it. We in Westminster will channel money directly to uh, those that need support without this middle, middle administration and we'll save lots of money and, uh, and we think that's a perfectly reasonable arrangement and we're planning to do it ASAP. What would you do if you're an MSP confronted with that situation? Well, they're doing it now. Um, they're doing it with the Shared Prosperity Fund, which, yeah. of course, previously was European uh, regional and structural funds, which would have come to Scotland for Scotland, first of all, to decide what its priorities were for that and for it to uh, disperse in that way. And this Shared Prosperity Fund, which has looked at areas um, which are most in need and decided that places like Club Manager, with uh, parts of it in multiple deprivation, don't qualify, whereas parts of Tory MPs' consistencies like Jacob Rees-Mogg do qualify, and that has got one intention, which is to undermine uh, the Scottish Parliament. But that's not new. <laughs> They've been doing this for a long time. The, the city deal, the, pros the rationale behind that was to do exactly the same kind of thing, to assert the UK government into Scotland. I would say, though, that they've been so ham-fisted in the way that they've done it. So, first of all, when they announced the city deals, and I was quite heavily involved in that when I was in the Cabinet, we put more money in every time than they did. And we did it in a way that actually took communities with us. And the UK government, if you remember how that came about, just suddenly announced shortly before, I think it was, the referendum, we're going to put half a billion pounds into Glasgow. Will you do the same? So we said, yes, we will. 
uh, and we have now put more money into city deals than the UK government has. But they also said this was, just as you're suggesting, John, this is not about Scottish partners, this is about going down to communities, taking councils with us. Well, the last one that they did in my area, Clipmanagshire and uh, Stirling, they have just been contentious of what the people in Clipmanagshire, not the Scottish government, but what the communities said that they wanted to do. They had no, by the time we got to sign that deal, they said that you've got £8 million, which is a major fallback from what they said they were going to do, and they couldn't even identify a project. They gave the council a year to come up with detailed projects that they could then approve. And then they didn't, they sat on it for about another year, more than a year afterwards. So they've moved away from the idea this is about local communities, real local democracy, and, and so on as well. So I think they've been completely ham-fisted in that approach. And if it gets reduced to the idea of slapping Union Jacks on everything under the sun and demanding to be flown from flagpoles and whatever, it tells you how much trouble they're in. So I, I don't, for a minute, uh, dismiss the fears that we have about the predations of Westminster on the Scottish Parliament. And I do think we have to be imaginative in how we respond to it and resist that. The best way, of course, is, in my view, an overwhelming vote, both votes SNP, moving on to a referendum as soon as possible and winning our independence. Well, you make the point, and I think very eloquently and convincingly, that it needs a concerted effort and everyone pulling together. In that case, why do the SNP not want to work with Alaba if Alaba are elected? Uh, well, as I say, I have only ever belonged to one political party. It's not a slavish support. I, um, Before I joined the SNP, I joined something called the Campaign for the Scottish Assembly and I, I ran a marathon to raise money for them. So my impetus has always been to have that um, uh, assertion of Scottish democracy. And I believe in what the SNP stand for. I don't believe in uh, many things which I think that Alba stand for. And in particular, the supermajority argument I... I'm not going to attack Alba. I, I don't know the policies. I really don't um, what the policies are. But the one that's been mentioned, the supermajority, I think, is extremely counterproductive to the independence movement. The idea that Scotland uniquely has to achieve a higher bar to have the right to assert its independence, I've never agreed with that. And I think it's manna from heaven to unionists will say, you didn't get the supermajority, so you're, you can't have your referendum. I, I don't agree with that. I think it's the wrong thing to have done. And there's nothing wrong in the old-fashioned point of view that I stand for a political party, which I believe in, and I want people to support that. So I'm I'm going to maximise the vote for the SNP. I'm not getting distracted by other parties, whether it's Alapa or the Greens or anybody else. I'm standing for what the SNP stands for. Oh, I, and that's laudable, and I, and I would expect you to say that, Keith. But the reality is, at the end of the day, uh, you know, parties need to work together in the Scottish Parliament. I mean... The SNP presently works with the Greens and with others to pass legislation. Nobody thinks that's at all unusual. And if you take into account historically, it's very unusual. Uh, and I've posed this question of unionists who've been on the show. Uh, for there only to be one uh, particular nationalist group, uh, historically, it's very, un very it's unique. Normally what happens is a left-wing nationalist party, a right-wing nationalist party, a group in the middle uh, and they all um, commit themselves to their own particular platforms. But when they get into power, they, they tend to sort of work together in order to achieve that common goal. Uh, so you can understand where people are slightly confused, perhaps, with one party saying, we will definitely not work with one of the other parties. Well, I think you've seen this over the years in UK politics, where uh, it was usually the Lib Dems were asked who they're going to do, do deals with in advance of an election. I'll let the other parties argue for themselves. It's really up to them. I, I, I'm, I'm an SNP. I'm an SNP candidate. Uh, I'm SNP deputy leader. Um, and I do think, and I know people would say, well, you would say this anyway, but I believe the best result for Scotland is the best possible, the highest possible representation for the SNP, uh, which I think Alex Salmon said in 2011. And I agree with that position. And I haven't changed my mind on that. And I think... A solid block of the SNP is the most compelling um, way to confront any reluctance there is the UK might have to agree a Section 30, although, as I've said already, them agreeing that Section 30 is not, um, or refusing to agree that Section 30 should not be a veto in having an independence referendum. But let other parties make uh, their arguments. And of course, when you get to a parliament, um, 
you can't decide which parties vote with you. If they want to vote with you, they vote with you. We often were accused in the 2007-11 Parliament of working with the Tories. Well, the Tories sometimes were shamed into supporting SNP things. They've now been shamed into supporting, for example, um, the abolition of tuition fees about a decade too late, but they've agreed that. And I'm not going to say to them, don't support that. You know, that's that's up to other parties. Let them decide what they want to do. I'm just quite clear on what the SNP intends to do. Okay, fair, fair point. Um, we're running out of time, but we've got one question which I think you might want to uh, offer a particular view on. Uh, Charles Smith is asking, as an ex-military man, uh, have you a view on likely Scottish defence requirements? Yes, so we have said we want to have a Scottish Defence Force um, roughly equivalent to the current size of the UK Armed Forces which are based in Scotland uh, and based at Faslane as its headquarters. I do think we can do more in terms of veterans and I think it's an appalling situation where the UK has cut the support for veterans and also the cut to the Armed Forces despite just 18 months ago a, a cast iron apparently election promise not to reduce the size of the Armed Forces. It should be a very different set of Armed Forces with no nuclear weapons for a start but concentrating much more on um, safeguarding Scotland's coastline um, which is massive by any um, imagination and also taking a much more constructive role in international affairs. I also agree that we should be part of NATO as well. I think that's important. But crucially without nuclear weapons, that would be the biggest difference. And it would be a defense force. That would be the idea of asserting power in different parts of the world, I think is wrong. And it's a hangover from the empire that the UK still suffers from. Scotland would have a modern defense force, in my view. Um, roughly equivalent to the current size. And anybody that's currently within the UK Armed Forces that wanted to serve in the Scottish Defence Force should be given that opportunity to do so if they're in Scotland just now. The defence, the the people in the army and the the forces generally, do they swear an oath to, to, I mean, is the oath that they swear, because we don't have a constitution, which would be the conventional oath. You you would say, "I, I swear to uphold the constitution, just like the president does. Uh, what, what is the oath that's presently taken in the armed forces? It's to the Queen as a head of state. That's what you do, her heirs and successors and all, all that goes with it. So that's what they swear uh, an oath to um, just now. So we'll could you speculate on who, who the head of state... Who the oath would be to an uh, independent Scottish armed services? Arrangement. Well, it would depend. If the Queen was still the head of state of an independent Scotland, of course, which is an open question. But um, just to go back to your previous point, though, John, these sort of, sort of things that you can put into the constitution that you want to have for an independent Scotland, and who the armed forces are loyal to, is it the government uh, of the day, which is never a good thing? Is it to the um, the constitution that you have, which should be more objective? I should say that even though countries decide to uh, form constitutions, doesn't mean to say they always um, comply with them. I mean, look at some of the fiascos that the UK government's got themselves involved in, even though it's a supposedly unwritten constitution, proroguing parliament and and, and all the rest of it. So it does depend on the behaviour of the government of the day as well. But that would be for independent Scotland to decide, in my view. Good. That's super. Are there any, we're almost out of time, Keith, any particular messages you'd like to give to the folks watching and listening today? Well, I do think, and I think all the parties would say this, this is the most important election. I've seen every single Scottish Parliament election. They've all seemed like the most important one at the time. But this one, I think most people can see why this is the important one. It's going to shape the future of Scotland for many years to come. And I do think it's really important that we think very clearly about the vote that we cast. And I do think, and I say it in all sincerity, with no disrespect to anybody else in the independence movement, that the most effective way we can take forward the idea of the independence referendum happening is a solid vote, both votes for the SNP. And we'll find out in just over a week's time, um, on the same day when Hibs are in the semi-final of the Scottish Cup, and let's hope for a good outcome to all of those things. Well, if my son is watching tonight, he'll be cheering you to the echo. <laughs> <laughs> good man. I might not feel quite so warm about that, but who knows? It's uh, Scottish football after all. Keith, thanks very much. Uh, it's uh, I much appreciate you. Uh, being here tonight and answering these questions as comprehensively as you have. Uh, uh, I I think it's been important. I I think it's been hopefully helpful to people watching and listening uh, because it gives us a sense of what the election is about. And it's terribly, terribly important uh, because turnout, I suspect, will be a factor. Um, So please, folks, if you've got a postal vote, can people still vote 
postally right now, Keith? They can do it right up into Poland. You can take your postal vote into the polling station if you want, John. And if somebody uh, finds that they're not going to be around on polling day, can somebody vote for them by proxy, even at this late stage? I think, and I would have to be corrected on this if I'm wrong, but I think it's still possible to get a proxy vote, though not a postal vote. Good. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Again, thank you very much indeed. Uh, a few concluding remarks, everyone. Uh, and it's this. Uh, I didn't catch that. Could you try again? I'm not quite sure what that is. Uh, got interference on the line. Uh, I just like to point out again, we have some great guests coming up. Uh, and we're, we're back next week with uh, a very, very interesting guy indeed. His name is Richard Haviland. He's a guy that's moved from a hard no in 2014 to a sort of softish yes and looking for uh, a chance to share his perspective on all of this. And I think you'll find it fascinating. So tune in next week at seven o'clock uh, to listen to Richard Haviland. Oh, yes, as always, look out for the Constitution column in the Sunday National at the weekend. I shall be writing and I'll give you this. And listen carefully, please. I don't want any complaints about uh, bad language. This is what I'll be writing about. I'll be describing the British government as a right bunch of dastards. You can look it up. It's not what you might think. Uh, and very importantly, please support Indy Live. Uh, they do a magnificent job. Kevin tonight and others too, and they'll be covering the election coming up. Look out for their great coverage of that. And it's free and it's live. Uh, and thank you again for joining us tonight. Uh, and a big thank you to Keith. And let, let me leave you with one <laughs> indicator about the health of British democracy. Boris Johnson's new ethics advisor works for an arms company. Make what you like out of that. A big thank you to Keith. And a big thank you to all of you who are watching tonight. Take care. See you next week.